George Bernard Shaw reputedly once said that uh, those who can do and those who can't teach and those who can't teach, teach others to teach. But uh, Yitamar Rabinovich is a living proof that George Bernard Shaw was wrong. Not only can he, but he did. Not only, and not only did he do, but he also taught and he continues to teach and he teaches others to teach through his numerous publications. So it's a great pleasure for me to welcome Yitamar Rabinovich to Princeton. It's not the first time uh, we welcome him to Princeton. He's, he's an old habitué of, uh, of this university. He first came here when he was uh, a senior lecturer at um, Tel Aviv University, having written his, or just about, his first book, Syria Under the Bath, 1963 to 1966. He came again uh, when he was an associate professor with another book on war and crisis in Lebanon, then a full professor uh, with a book on dispatches from Damascus. And he came the next time he was dean of the humanities at Tel Aviv University. Uh, then he was the director of the most important center of Middle Eastern studies at, uh, in, in, in Israel and one of the most important in the world, the, uh, the, the Dayan Center for Middle Eastern and African Studies. Uh, he came again uh, when he was rector of the university. And then he wrote a book called The Road Not Taken, uh, Early Arab-Israeli Negotiations in 1991, and this was very foresightful uh, on his part because it was about the possibilities of peace between Israel and Syria in the early days of the State of Israel. And this was just shortly before he himself became the Israeli ambassador in 1993 uh, to the United States, a position which he held until uh, 1996. Uh, he returned uh, during this period. He also came to visit us in Princeton and spoke to a, uh, a, a, in, in this very room. Uh, he came back, he went back to Israel where he after his uh, uh, stint as ambassador, and he has since published one book at the Princeton University Press uh, on uh, called the brink uh, 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 the brink of peace uh, on on um, on, on uh, the negotiations between um, Syria and Israel, and has just completed another book uh, entitled "Waging Peace: Arab-Israeli." Uh, relations at the uh, century's end. Yitamar is not only one of the most brilliant scholars of the contemporary and modern Middle East, but the one who I have rarely uh, met, I, indeed I've never met anybody who can equal him in clear analysis and, and, and lucid exposition um, of the situation. Sometimes it's so lucid you can't understand why the Middle East is such a mess that it is. So uh, <clears throat> uh, it's my pleasure, I should say, that Itamar comes to us this time, not as a, uh, as, a, uh, as a senior lecturer, not as an associate professor, a dean, or a rector, or even as an ambassador, but as president-elect of the University of Tel Aviv, a position that he will uh, uh, assume in, in, in June. Uh, and I don't know how, what he's going to be doing the next time he comes here but having attained all of these summits. But uh, I'm confident that there will be something interesting. Uh, so it is a great pleasure for me to introduce Yitamar, who will speak for about 35 or 40 minutes, and then we'll welcome questions from the audience. Yitamar. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Avram, for, for an overly generous introduction. It's a genuine pleasure to be here, to meet uh, old friends and mentors. I see Mrs. Keating here, who it was home in Israel. I, I first learned how diplomats really function efficiently. We have a visitor in, you have a visitor in town, Professor Dawn, who is uh, not only a, a 1948 Princeton PhD, but uh, in many respects the Dean of Syrian Studies and uh, the author of several masterly works on, on the rise of Arab nationalism in, in Syria. Uh, 
my colleagues in the, in the recent studies here, my, my publisher, Walter Lippincott, my friends, the Drapers. It's a genuine delight to be here, and I'm, I'm informed even a classmate of mine from, from high school. Oh, what else can I ask for? Uh, one correction to Professor Yudovich's uh, introduction. I'm not president-elect of the university, but uh, I'm, I'm the sole candidate for the presidency, <laughs> which I, I've not spent four years of negotiation with the Syrian idly. We've learned a thing or two. Uh, and I expect a 99.9999 uh, majority in, in the elections on May 31st. So, but to all, to all effects, I, uh, I, I guess I will be the next president of, of Tel Aviv University uh, <clears throat> and hope to, uh, to continue the, the relationship with Princeton to, to other avenues as well. What I, I chose to speak to, to you about tonight is uh, a view of uh, Arab relations now, and I chose the title Beyond the Siege for two reasons. Uh, we did live in a state of siege and, and we had uh, a siege mentality and the politics of siege for, for many years and in many respects I think we, we are out of that, objectively speaking. Uh, our politics are no longer the politics of siege and actually the divisiveness, uh, the present divisiveness of Israeli politics is to some extent a reflection of that. Um, Israelis were afraid to, uh, to pursue uh, personal, sectarian, ethnic, uh, <clears throat> confessional interests with, uh, with full passion precisely because they felt that we were living in a state of siege and uh, unity had to be kept at all costs, or almost at all costs, uh, in order to face the common danger. And one of the byproducts of, of the peace process has been the fact that uh, Israelis, is less keen on, Israelis are less keen on that and feel more secure and more prone to pursue their personal or sectarian interests. Secondly, I, this is in reference to, uh, to a very good book that was done at the time by the Irishman Conor Cruz O'Brien about uh, Israel called The Siege, uh, which when written was still an up title, but my point is precisely that, that the siege phase is over, um, a peace settlement can be made, not an, an optimal peace settlement, not the kind of peace that all Israelis would agree upon, but peace can be made. This is a genuine uh, peace process. The travails of the peace process during the last few years uh, also provide a clear proof that uh, this is a, an effective peace process. It's, it's been set back, it's been derailed, but it's still on despite all the problems of the past few years. So I, I feel quite confident to say that uh, this is a peace process that will go forward, uh, not as swiftly and not as smoothly as some would hope, but uh, the siege in any event is over. But before I dwell on that, let me, let me go back and, and put us into the sequence. Um, the Arab-Israeli conflict, the full-fledged Arab-Israeli conflict is, is just over 50 years old. It, uh, it's as old as the states. Uh, we mark the beginning of the full-fledged conflict with the War of 1948. Of course, it would also be correct to date the conflict to the 1880s and to say that a conflict between Israelis and Arabs, uh, there were no Palestinians then as such, began with the, uh, with the onset of the Jewish return to Zion in the 1880s. There was some opposition and some antagonism, and it turned into a full-fledged conflict after the publication of the Balfour Declaration and the establishment of the British Mandate uh, in the early 1920s. And then it was a conflict between what we call Jews and Arabs, today would say Israelis and Palestinians, over uh, both the right, the title to, to the land, and to actual possession and control of the land. There was involvement by Arab states and by other Muslims, and of course the Jewish community in Palestine had the support of the Zionist movement and 
of the Jewish people, but it was not the full-fledged conflict that developed after the formation of the state and after the first uh, Arab-Israeli war. So that, that full-fledged conflict is 50 years old. Uh, it's a remarkable fact that um, while the conflict is 50 years old, the peace process is 25 years old. Uh, an Arab-Israeli peace process began in 1973 uh, <coughs> at, uh, at the end of the October War. Uh, it, it became a full-fledged peace process in 1977 when an uh, Israeli-Egyptian actual peace negotiation began and led to the first Arab-Israeli peace treaty in 1979. But that, that was just the beginning, and then there was a hiatus of a decade. And the Arab-Israeli peace process resumed with the Madrid conference in the early 90s. The Madrid conference is, is the real beginning of the peace process. This is the first sustained effort to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict, an effort that for most of the time has enjoyed the support of the international community. Of course, over the years there have been many uh, intermittent efforts, um, some of them sponsored by the international community, but none of them equaled the uh, effort of the, of the Madrid conference. Now, we know obviously some of the reasons that turned uh, uh, 1991 into a turning point, the end of the Cold War, the Gulf War, uh, also the weariness on both sides. The, on the Israeli side, the effect of the Intifada. I'd like to stress um, the impact of the Palestinian Intifada. For 20 years, from uh, 1967 to 1987, for just over 20 years, um, Israeli control of the West Bank and Gaza was relatively painless. I say relatively painless. And when Israelis had to contemplate and the pros and cons or the, the relative pain of making a decision with regard to the West Bank and Gaza and perpetuating the status quo, they always opted for the status quo, which societies and governments would naturally tend to do. The Intifada, for the first time, confronted Israeli society and the Israeli political system with the full price of occupation. It became an issue where your, your husband, your children had to pursue Palestinian children in the alleys of Gaza, in the alleys of, of Nablus, and the sights on television were unbearable for Israeli society. And even in the Israeli right wing, the perception uh, percolated that this was becoming too costly and that something had to be done about that. That was on the Israeli side. On the Arab side, there was fatigue, there was a change of priorities, for many Arabs in the Gulf, in North Africa, this no longer seemed to be the burning issue that it had been in the past, in the sense that if you lived in the Gulf, if you were a Saudi or a Kuwaiti, then the Iraqi threat and the Iranian threat, or Islamic fundamentalism in general, seemed to you to be more important than the <clears throat> ebb and flow of the Palestinian problem or the Arab-Israeli problem. And the sense was that let the Israelis and the Palestinians find some solution and let us proceed with our lives and pursue our real uh, priorities. The sense that time was no longer on the Arab side, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the arrival of a million Jews from the former Soviet Union to Israel, the decline of the oil industry, the decline of the oil prices, all of that sent a clear sense that time wasn't necessarily on the Arab side and it was time to settle. And it was against this background that the uh, Madrid framework was put together by Secretary of State Baker and the peace process began. Um, the peace process picked up in 1992 after Rabin became the Israeli Prime Minister. And I would like, like to speak briefly about the two phases, uh, Rabin Peres phase of the years 1993-1996 and the Netanyahu years 1996 to the present, in order to, to get us to the present situation. Um, when Rabin became uh, Prime Minister uh, in, uh, in 1992, um, 
he was determined to effect a change. He was determined to move the Arab-Israeli uh, peace process. Um, he was 70 years old. He was given a rare gift. He, uh, he, he had been prime minister from 1974 to 1977. He lost power, had to resign in 1977. And he and many others did not expect him to have a second chance 15 years later. And his clear sense when he was given that chance was that he was not elected in, in that rare capacity to be prime minister second time again just to pass four or eight years in power, but that had something meaningful had to happen. And his sense was that he had to take advantage of this new Madrid framework, of what he saw as a real sea change in the region and in the international scene, and to start the peace process going. Rabin was a very cautious, conservative man. He did not believe in uh, effecting a change in one fell swoop. He did not believe that um, a comprehensive Arab-Israeli settlement could be worked immediately. He was an incrementalist. His feeling was that he had to begin somewhere and build on and move gradually and maybe in the second term arrive at a comprehensive uh, settlement. That was his view. Uh, he also did not have a clear priority. Uh, he, was, he did not know whether it would be better to begin with the Palestinian leg of the process or with the Syrian leg of the process. Decided pragmatically that uh, he'd better explore the possibility and, and move where the possibility or the opportunity presented itself. And uh, in 1993, it turned out that the Oslo agreement could be made with the Palestinians. We explored with the Syrians at the same time and we came to the conclusion that it would be very difficult to make a reasonable deal with Assad at the time. And so he chose to begin with Oslo um, and effected the historical compromise with Palestinian nationalism and a framework for uh, Israeli-Palestinian reconciliation. On the basis of that, he built the agreement with Jordan, which was the second full-fledged uh, Arab-Israeli peace treaty, and achieved an unanticipated, a surprising degree of Arab-Israeli normalization, developed practical diplomatic relations with countries in North Africa and in the Gulf and the economic conferences of the, uh, of the Middle East. And uh, he did not pursue with any determination, with any deliberate sense, the deal with Syria, which he preferred to relegate to a second term. He thought that what he had accomplished, as I described now, was certainly ample for one term and uh, could wait with the rest for the second term, which he, of course, never got to have. But in many respects, this was a, a very simulating period after all, to, to have accomplished the breakthrough between uh, Israel and the PLO and Palestinian nationalism, to have full-fledged peace with Jordan, to achieve that degree of normalization, to generate a sense that Arab-Israeli relations were finally mounting the track of settlement, uh, that all sensed, uh, created a sense of optimism and a sense that this, this conflict uh, could be resolved. And these, these were the the wonderful achievements of the peace process of that period. But let us not be starry-eyed about that period. It also had a dark side, and there were many, many problems that must be borne in mind. One was the violence. Uh, violence continued. Um, there were actually more, more Israeli casualties of terrorism during that period than during the earlier years. This was the result of a concerted attack on the peace process by the enemies of the peace process on the Arab Muslim side, if we add the Iranians to the equation. But there was also an attack by the Jewish right wing. There was the massacre at the tomb of the patriarchs, and there was Rabin's own assassination, uh, which both of which proved to be terribly effective. So the violence. The second was... Uh, the controversy inside Israel and on the Arab side. This was a peace process that was not loved on both sides. It was a very controversial peace process on the Arab side. 
Uh, it's been called the peace of the elites. It was done by the political elites with a great deal of opposition by the intelligentsia and apathy by, by the masses. And on the Israeli side, this was a peace process pursued by a uh, government that relied on a very slim majority. Um, and it's very difficult to, to go through so many controversial decisions when your government rests on such a slim majority. Also, the cliches, some cliches happen to be true. It is indeed easier for a right-wing government to make peace than it is for a center-left-wing government for, for the obvious reasons, as, as we discovered from both sides of that, uh, of that equation. Also, as the peace process went on, we discovered the limits of, of peace on both sides. Um, peace, uh, peace could be had, but in the formal sense of, uh, of the term. And uh, distinction was created on the Arab side between peace and normalization. The Arab consensus came to accept the fact that Israel had to be given peace, or peace had to be made with Israel, and it could be, it had to be contractual peace with diplomatic relations and all the paraphernalia of a formal peaceful relationship, but that what we came to call normalization, uh, which to some extent was voluntary, could and should, by, 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 almost by decree, be denied to the Israelis. Now, to complete the picture, I should say that many Israelis are not interested in normalization as such. Say, uh, if you ask most Israelis, would you really be interested in fully open borders so that all of us could go and, and visit all our neighbors and all our neighbors could visit us? And every Egyptian who wants to go by car from Cairo to Damascus would cross the state of Israel on the way. The answer would probably be no. I'm, I'm, there would be a preference for the intimacy and way of life of, of Israel as, as such. That degree of normalization is not what Israelis crave. But what Israelis appreciate about normalization is a yardstick for the depth of peace. After all, if you are asked to make territorial concessions, if you are asked to withdraw, to offer tangible and irreversible concessions for reversible and intangible concessions made on the other side, you want some degree of guarantee that you are not taking a, uh, <clears throat> a wild risk. And the agreement or disagreement on the other side to offer you normalization becomes a yardstick of the depth and durability of peace. And in that respect, the Arab opposition to normalization um, disturbed many Israelis and, and caused them a sense of anxiety. And, and so it came, uh, it came to be in the elections of 1996 in Israel, which came in the aftermath of Rabin's assassination, that uh, the issue, to a great extent, was on the reaction to peace, that uh, uh, Shimon Peres, the Rabin's successor, ran on a platform of, I will continue in the same policy with a vengeance, and I will continue with a swift implementation of peace. And uh, the head of the opposition, Benjamin Netanyahu, ran on, on the slogan of, I will continue with peace, but in a more deliberate pace, I will insist on security, um, I will provide you the personal security that so many of you have, have lost, or the sense of security, but I will persist in the peace process. I will insist on reciprocity and, and compliance in, in a way that the previous government had not. And it turned out that this was a very effective platform, that it appealed to enough Israelis on the center to uh, make the shift and, and vote for the head of the uh, opposition. Uh, Israeli elections, I should say, are decided by the shift of two or three percentage points from one side to the other. Uh, so was the case in 1992, and so was the case in 1996. Rabin, I can't even tell you that Rabin won by a few thousand votes because actually Shamir had a few more thousand votes or the right wing had a few more thousand votes than uh, Rabin and Labour in 1992, but because of our election law, um, 20,000 20, votes went by the wayside because they were cast for a 
uh, a withering right-wing party and, and were not counted. But if you, if you were to count the votes in 1992, there wasn't uh, a majority for the center and left. But enough, enough shifted to elect Rabin and enough shifted back in 1996 to elect Netanyahu. And from all we know with regard to the election on you know, May 17 or June 1 of this year, it may very well be decided by 20 or 30,000 votes, not more, than, not more than that. So all that Netanyahu needed in, in 1996 was, was to appeal to 40, 50,000 voters in the center by telling them that he would continue in the peace policy but would do so in a more deliberate pace and look after the personal security, and that sufficed to get him uh, to get him elected. So we come to the Netanyahu years. And clearly, these are, this is the period, May 1996 to, uh, to the present, governed by, by two main processes. Um, one is, of course, the uh, decline of the peace process mm -hmm. because of the change in Israeli policy, because of the nature of the Arab reaction, because of changes in U.S. policy, the second Clinton administration has not been the same with regard to the peace process as the first Clinton administration, and the peace process has declined to the point, almost to the point of extinction. This is quite evident. At the same time, there's been one positive development, and that is that the Israeli right wing, um, <clears throat> parts of the Israeli right wing, headed by the Prime Minister himself, bought on into the idea of a territorial compromise with the Palestinians. This is what Netanyahu did when he signed the agreement on withdrawal from Hebron in January 1997, and this is what he did in a more powerful way in October 1998 when he signed the Y, uh, the y agreement, uh, giving away 13%, uh, another 13% of the West Bank. If, if you think of the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu and Ariel Sharon, uh, two, two major leaders of the Israeli right wing, were at the helm at the White Plantation, this, of course, is a, is a significant development. And having said earlier that it's easier for a right wing government to make peace with concessions than it is for a left wing government, then, of course, this represents an important development. But well, these, these were the two governing facts. This was a period rich in, um, uh, in events uh, and a period that represented a setback for the peace process. The negotiation with Syria that was suspended temporarily in March 1996 has not been renewed. Uh, there's been continuing violence in Lebanon. Uh, very little happened with the Palestinians and peace, uh, the regional dimension of the peace process, the economic conferences have been suspended. Israel's relationship with the Arab partners, countries with whom we have peace, Jordan and Egypt and countries in the Gulf and North Africa has declined as well. On the whole, this has not been a positive period. And uh, we now, of course, are deployed for the, uh, for the elections of uh, of May, which to a great extent are a referendum on the peace process. These are two very important facts to, to note here. One is that the degree to which the pace of uh, the Middle East peace process has been determined by Israeli events, talking about the Israeli elections of 92, the Israeli elections of 96, the assassination of Rabin, and now the elections of 98. Uh, this, this is the key factor. This wasn't always the case. In the 1970s, one key event, for instance, in determining the pace and events in the uh, Middle East peace process was the transition from, Reagan to, uh, from Carter to Reagan. Carter was the man who, uh, the president who oversaw the Camp David Accords, who pushed for um, implementation of the Camp David Accords, and when he was defeated by Reagan, uh, President came in who was not all that interested in, uh, uh, in Camp David, uh, 
developments that had been identified with his predecessors. It was an American election that, that made a difference at that point, and it has been, have been events in Israel that, that have made a, made a difference. A second point that I'd, I'd like to emphasize is the linkages that have been created inside Israel uh, between various right-wing causes. It is not at all mandatory that if you are Orthodox, you should, you should be against concessions to, to Arabs or to the Palestinians. It is not at all necessary that if you are an Israeli of Middle Eastern extraction, you should take a right-wing position with regard to the Arab-Israeli conflict. But the fact of the matter is that the Israeli right-wing uh, is to a great extent composed of, of, of such, uh, <coughs> uh, such linkages that there is a large block in Israeli politics, some of it predicated on religion, the Orthodox party, some of it predicated on Jewish ethnic uh, identity, mostly North African or Middle Eastern uh, ethnic uh, identity, uh, and that together with the ideological right wing, they form a powerful bloc that uh, is opposed to concessions to the Arabs. Peace without concessions, yes, but we all know that peace without concessions is quite an empty, empty slogan. You cannot really move on in a peace process except on the basis of, of mutual concessions that enable you to reach which compromise. But this is the, the way Israeli politics have been, have been cast recently. But interestingly enough also, there is no stigma in the term right wing. I remember years ago, nobody in Israeli politics would say about himself, I'm a right winger. Say I'm a nationalist, I'm a centrist. Um, being a right winger or being very much of the left could be labels that you put on. Nowadays, uh, in Israeli right-wing politics, uh, it's bon ton to say, I'm a right-winger, because left, leftist has become a, uh, um, <coughs> a dirty word. Leftist is, is a fix to individuals who are not leftists. Isaac Rabin was anything but a leftist. The leader of the Labour Party, Eud Barak, is not a leftist. He's, uh, he's quite centrist, quite, uh, quite an activist, but he believes in peace based on concessions and therefore he becomes ipso facto uh, a leftist. Of course, the fact that the Israeli Labour Party kept the uh, <coughs> antiquated name Labour for a party that is more identified with the uh, employers than with the employees uh, is, uh, obviously doesn't help in that, uh, in that regard. But that, of course, is, is a very important fact as a background to the elections. In any event, the elections are going to be a decisive moment. My own sense is that the most likely outcome of the elections would be a national unity government. If Netanyahu is elected, uh, he will find himself in the same fix, in the same bind that led to the fall of his government. That would be what I would call the contradiction between policy and politics. Um, Netanyahu was elected in 1996 on a right-wing nationalist platform and once he became Prime Minister he realized that that was not a viable platform and he, and he had to adopt a realistic policy that he had to continue in the peace process and of course he found himself in the contradiction between policy and politics which ultimately in the aftermath of the Y agreement toppled his government and led to these elections so if he is re-elected, he'll find himself uh, in the same bind. If Barack is elected by a small majority, he'll find himself in the same predicament that Rabin and Paris were in. Say, it would be difficult for a center-left government to continue in the peace process, particularly when it comes to the very difficult final status negotiation with the Palestinians, and do that on the basis of the slim majority, and so therefore both in both cases, either Netanyahu or Barack or Mordechai, the third candidate, would find that they, they need to broaden the base of their politics. And my sense is that 
the likely outcome would be a national unity government, of course it would make a big difference as to who, who heads that government, but I think that, that is a very likely outcome. Having said all of that, let me now explore some of the issues on the current, uh, on the current agenda. And let me begin with the, the question of the, of the Syrian negotiations, the negotiations that, as I said, were suspended in, um, in 1996 and were not renewed. Um, they have not been renewed for an apparent reason and then for a more substantive reason. The apparent reason is a procedural debate. The position of Hafez al-Assad is that he wants to renew the negotiations, but only at the point at which they had been interrupted. Um, in other words, he wants to subsume in, in the negotiations everything that was said and exchanged in the negotiations with our government. Um, and also, so that brings the question of what was said and what was of a binding nature. Um, Syrian claim is that in the negotiations Israel promised, undertook, uh, to withdraw from the Golan. Uh, the position that uh, we hold and uh, the book that I did here with, with Princeton uh, University Press is, has my, uh, my, full, my full version, tries to document that there was a hypothetical discussion, there was no agreement, commitment, or promise to, to withdraw. But that is a procedural debate. That's not the real debate. The real debate is about, or the real question is, is a question of policy. Both sides know precisely what it takes. And we, from our negotiations, it's very clear what the Syrian-Israeli agreement could look like. And <clears throat> I put it in these terms. Hafez al-Assad is willing to sign a peace treaty with Israel. Uh, he wants Israeli withdrawal from the Golan. In return for this, he is willing to offer a cold peace without normalization, unsatisfactory security arrangements, and he is not willing to engage in any public diplomacy, anything that would be reminiscent of what Sadat did. Now, this is a position that two Israeli prime ministers, Rabin and Peres, found acceptable, that Netanyahu has not been interested in, and I would say to you that whoever becomes prime minister after the next election would find that this is not an attractive position. The, these gaps could be bridged, uh, could only be bridged by one actor, that's the United States government. If, uh, if U.S. President is willing to invest the same effort that President Clinton invested at the White Plantation, um, this, could, uh, uh, this could happen. Uh, we do not wish to recreate the domestic American background to the White Plantation, but uh, uh, an effort on that, on that scale could close the gap between Syria and Israel. So this, this may yet happen in the aftermath of the elections, obviously cannot happen before the elections. Israel and the, and the Palestinians. Uh, the Y agreement was signed in October 1998. Now let us, for a moment, try to recall what the Y plantation, plantation Agreement is all about. The Y Plantation Agreement is about the implementation of the Oslo II Accord from 1995. It's about two Israeli further redeployments and about Palestinian compliance with Palestinian commitments. But we are way behind on uh, the, the final status negotiations. They have, they have not begun, they should have begun, and on May 4, the interim period of five years uh, is going to be over. I would say that we need to rethink this, this whole framework. It's badly out of gear. What was the point of, of the Oslo Accords? What was the philosophy underlying the Oslo Accords? It was an approach designed to build confidence through phased implementation. We can say anything about Israeli-Palestinian relations now, obviously, we are not building confidence. And this, this philosophy, which had worked at the outset, is not working now. It needs to be replaced by, uh, by a new approach. And 
I think we should move on directly to final status negotiations. I'm personally sanguine uh, about the ability to reach agreement. You can look at the, uh, at the many problems, but you can also look at two very important positive facts. I think that on the Israeli side, there is a, a widespread understanding that there will have to be a Palestinian state, that there will be a Palestinian state. Netanyahu himself, people around him, Sharon, many leaders of the Israeli right wing have said that this is the case. They reserve acceptance for the negotiations, but they clearly send a message that they understand that uh, this is inevitable and will have to be recognized and accepted by Israel. Many Palestinians on the other, on the other side have accepted the fact that at least the bulk of the Israeli settlements and settlers in the West Bank will stay, that uh, whatever happens, any notions, any dreams of removing the bulk of the settlers are not realistic. And if you take these two facts and, and work with them, um, a, a formula could be found. So, so that, that is doable. Uh, uh, that is doable as well. A word about Lebanon. Uh, earlier this week, another three Israeli officers were killed in Lebanon, and this, this of course, is more and more of a public issue uh, on the Israeli uh, agenda. Uh, and there is a fierce debate uh, between those who argue that Israel should just pack and leave because there's nothing useful to be gained by staying in Lebanon and those who argue against it and those who argue that Israel should escalate its activity in, uh, in Lebanon. I belong to those who believe that the only solution to Israel's predicament in Lebanon lies in an agreement with Syria. Whether we like it or not, Syria controls Lebanon and uh, since we Israelis are not going to try to change that, we have to, to, to live with that, with that fact. And once we settle our relations with Syria, the Lebanese problem will fall into place as well. Before that happens, we don't have too many good options. Es escalating our activities doesn't make any sense and won't work. I personally think that unilateral withdrawal will do more harm than good. And so keeping the status quo is, is the least evil of uh, several unattractive uh, uh, propositions, and I personally uh, <clears throat> believe in, uh, in doing just, uh, just that. A, wor a word about U.S. policy. I said, I said earlier that uh, there's been a marked change, marked shift from the first Clinton administration to the second Clinton administration. I'd like to elaborate on that uh, a bit. Um, in the first Clinton administration, this was the administration's most successful foreign policy issue, and U.S. policy in the Arab-Israeli conflict or in the Arab-Israeli peace process has been very effective, either by being active where it was important or willing to, to be subtly helpful where a light hand uh, was required. Um, <clears throat> this was not a policy that originally was crafted by the Clinton administration. This is the original Bush administration policy. It was inherited by the administration that wisely decided to continue and wisely recognized a major asset. It had an ally in the form of Yitzhak Rabin who was determined to move the peace process in and of himself. And once you have a sure footing with the Israelis, then your diplomacy can, can be more effective. What happened in a transition from the first to the second Clinton administration was that many of these elements had, had disappeared. Rabin was not there, even Paris was not there, and instead of a friendly uh, Israeli prime minister, there was a prime minister who was elected despite the wishes of the Clinton administration, and who was a friend and ally of the conservative Republicans, and uh, the relationship was very uncomfortable. Uh, so there was no sure footing on on the Israeli side. Um, the Secretary of State changed, and it was not Madeleine Albright's priority to continue in exactly the same vein 
as, uh, as that of Warren Christopher's. And the whole configuration in the region changed. There are other changes uh, in, uh, uh, <clears throat> in Turkey at the time, in Saudi Arabia, the whole policy of dual containment with regard to Iran and Iraq collapsed in both places. The Middle East ceased to be the hospitable environment that it had been in, in the first term, and the administration for much of this period um, distanced itself. It, it only made this one major effort at the White Plantation with surprising effect, and I think that, that generated a, a sense that uh, the administration might want to become active again, but the uh, onset of the Israeli elections, of course, served as a deterrent. They, they feel correctly that uh, anything they do now might affect the elections in a way that uh, is not desirable to, to anyone. Uh, in 1996, uh, it was no secret what the Clinton administration wanted, but its effort to help Shimon Peres was sometimes more clumsy than, uh, than effective, and this time, uh, obviously, they are determined to keep their, their distance. So since we are reaching our time limit, let me stop here before we, we move to, to questions and answers, and, and let, me, let me sum up. Um, we have a framework for a, for a peace process, and the, uh, the ashes uh, are still there, despite almost three years of a crisis in the peace process, it is still on. It can be revived, and I think it can lead to, uh, uh, to an Arab-Israeli settlement. Now, what do we mean by that? There, there, there are no Berlin walls in the, in the Middle East. We're not going to see an overnight transformation from the present realities to, uh, to a peaceful, uh, harmonious Middle East. But we can revive the peace process, we can move on in phases, we can deal with the Palestinians, we can then deal with the Syrians, we can have a guarded, uh, a guarded settlement. The Arabs will not offer the Israelis the warm peace that, or the normalization that the Israelis want. The Israelis will not offer the Arabs all the concessions that the Arabs want to see. The Middle East is not going to be Western Europe for decades to come, but a much more attractive alternative to the status quo cannot only be envisaged, but can also be implemented, and that's the policy we would all like to see. Thank you very much. The floor is open for uh, questions, comments. Yes. Can you wait a second? I'll just give you this so everybody can hear. Here. With regard to normalization between, um, say, Israel and Egypt, it's certainly a very cold peace right now, and I agree with you on that. Do you think it's in Israel's interest in terms of normalization for the United States to press for political liberalization in Egypt or other uh, others of, of Israel's neighbors? Um, Israelis are able to elect their leaders, while in Egypt they're not, and there are many Egyptians that want to visit Israel, but they're not able to. So I'm interested in your ideas on that. Okay. Uh, thank you. You're actually raising your questions, in your question, two, two different issues. The question of, uh, um, of the cold peace with Egypt, and secondly, the question of should Israel hope for the United States to exert pressure on Egypt to liberalize its policies in the sense that it would be better more, more, more stable to have peace with democratic countries. Uh, let me address these two, actually three different uh, separate issues. One is um, there are profound reasons for the Egyptian policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel, and most importantly, there is a sense of competition um, that transcends the Arab-Israeli conflict. Even if there, were, there was no Palestinian problem, uh, there would be a competition between Egypt and Israel. Egypt is a powerful regional state, regards itself as the leader of the Arab world, as a preeminent state in the region, and Israel is a competitor in, in that regard. And 
uh, when the when the peace process blossomed and the first economic summit of the uh, of the Middle East took place in Casablanca in uh, October 1994, the Egyptians were horrified by the by the specter of hundreds of Israeli businessmen descending on Casablanca, bringing um, uh, bringing their business acumen and and, and ambitions and schemes to, to play. Uh, they felt that uh, they might be taken over. In this context, uh, I must mention the, the unfortunate uh, story of the Shimon Peres's vision of the New Middle East. Um, Shimon Peres is right. And if you look at the book, The New Middle East, the book argues that the real, the real underlying problems of the region uh, are scarcity of resources, overpopulation and scarcity of resources. And if you look, let's say, a decade or two down the road, this is what you would see. It's uh, hundreds of millions of people, limited resources, and poverty and uh, maybe a struggle for water and other scarce resources, and you would have no stability. And what Shimon Peres says is, let us all deal together with these problems and uh, guarantee our future. This was seen on the Arab side, on the Egyptian side, as a subtle, um, cunning uh, vision of a neo-colonial takeover through economic means and generated a backlash. So I am afraid that uh, what we'll have with Egypt for years to come would be neighborly relations, but bad neighborly relations. This is preferable to, to the old conflict. Second question is about American pressure to, to liberalize the politics of Egypt or any other country. I would say as a, as a matter, as a rule, it doesn't work. Any effort by a, an external power to engineer the politics of other countries doesn't work and oftentimes is counterproductive. Go back to uh, American efforts to engineer Arab politics in the late 40s and early 50s, including in Egypt itself, and you'd see what I mean. The third issue that appeared in your question was the question, can, can peace with non-democratic countries be, be durable? Uh, obviously, it's better to have peaceful relations with democratic neighbors. But, uh, if you don't have democratic neighbors and you're not likely to have them for, for years to come, what is your choice? To live by the sword or take a calculated risk and make peace with undemocratic neighbors? I would opt for the second. Yes. Yes, sir. I was wondering, uh, my question doesn't deal directly with the Arab-Israeli relations, but with the Turkish-Israeli relations and the effect that this, this growing... Turkish-Israeli relations and its effect on, on the Middle East and the Arab neighbors of Israel, specifically how if it alienates Syria and what effect that will have on Syrian-Israeli dialogue. Okay. <clears throat> um, Turkey is a, is a very important country for everybody. Uh, if you look at Turkey from Washington, or you look at Turkey from Tel Aviv, or almost from any other capital, you see a very important country, a country that uh, is, has borders with countries that matter to us, and has borders with uh, uh, Syria, uh, with Iraq, uh, with Iran, uh, is a country that has an impact on uh, the Caucasus, and on Central Asia, where you have Turkey-speaking people who are ethnically and culturally close to Turkey, has an impact on an interest in what goes on in the Balkans, controls the Black Sea Straits, not from an American economic perspective, but from an Israeli economic perspective. It's an, an important uh, trading partner. And for Israel, specifically in military terms, uh, military cooperation with Turkey is very important. Uh, for instance, we now have a problem of airspace since the return of the Sinai to Egypt and Israeli pilots train over Turkey where there's, there's no problem. 
So, uh, uh, and also, politically or symbolically, it's important for Israel to have relations with Turkey as a Muslim country. Now we have also peaceful relations with Arab countries. In the days before that was possible, to having a normal relationship with a large Muslim country was important in itself and, and remains important. Now, at least as seen from Israel, the Israeli-Turkish alliance or relationship has no anti-Syrian edge. If, if the Israelis have a negative aim in mind in building the relationship with Turkey, it's Iran. It's first and foremost directed against Iran. It's not a pincer movement directed against uh, Syria. But in Damascus, you will not persuade anyone that this is not a plot, a scheme, a pincer movement to uh, isolate and weaken, uh, weaken Syria. It is seen as in very negative terms by Syria and on the whole by, by other Arabs. I mentioned the Israeli-Egyptian competition. The, the Egyptians are not exactly enamored of, of this axis, Israeli-Turkish, sometimes Jordanian axis. They regard it as, as a rivalry to their own, uh, to their own thinking about the way the Middle East should be structured. So here's the dilemma. Uh, how do you manage this important and sensitive relationship without offending others? And we Israelis were hit in the face last week by, uh, by the eruption of, of Kurdish animosity in Europe, uh, calculating that if Israel and Turkey uh, are such close allies and Ojalan is, is, is being... Uh, hijacked in, in an operation that looks exactly like the Eichmann uh, hijacking in Argentina, then it must have been Israel's hidden hand, which was not the case. And suddenly we find ourselves at loggerheads uh, with, uh, with the Kurds. So it's obviously at a less political time, uh, Israel will have to, to find a way of managing this very important relationship Turkey and continuing it without antagonizing Arabs and Armenians and, and uh, Greeks and, and Kurds. It's an awful lot of people that you don't want to antagonize. Uh, Syria has had a remarkably stable leadership over the recent period. Uh, but there are persistent, persistent rumors that Assad is not getting any younger. Uh, could you share some of your thoughts on how could uh, a change there affect the peace process with Syria? Uh, yeah, Assad is uh, in his late 60s, but he's, he's, not, he's not a healthy person, and uh, you know, a succession may become an issue soon or in a few years. Um, now, there's a debate in, in Israel. People who believe in making a deal with Syria argue that you should hurry because Assad is there, he's well established, he has the authority and legitimacy, and he can make a deal. Uh, if he, or when he dies and there is a new ruler, it would take time for the new ruler or government or regime to uh, uh, establish themselves sufficiently to, to make peace with Israel. The right-wing argument takes the same set of facts and argues it uh, conversely, that, well, if, uh, if Assad is, is going, only going to be with us a few more years, and if we don't know anything about the succession and the identity of uh, his successor and the stability of a new regime, why should we take the risk of getting off the Golan Heights. That, that's for let us wait and see what happens and then we'll deal with the new, with new ruler. But these are all, these are all hypothetical, uh, these are all hypothetical considerations. This is not the issue. Um, you know, at the time when, when Rabin, as I, I, I told you earlier that Rabin, after the Oslo Accords, actually preferred to delay uh, a deal with Syria for a second term. But uh, this, this, could be, this calculus could be disrupted any day by Assad. If Assad were to, to, to say that he wanted to come for a meeting with President Clinton and the Prime Minister of Israel, there would have been a deal. 
And I would say this, the same is true. We could argue from the left side or from the right side the, the pros and cons of a deal with Syria if after the Israeli elections Assad were to, to tell President Clinton that he would like him to convene a meeting between the Prime Minister of Israel and the President of Syria, there, there will be a deal. Can you visualize the Israeli public supporting uh, the notion of giving up the Golan Heights in a peace agreement? Mm -hmm. The uh, <clears throat> right now, right now, if you were to conduct, I mean, we know from public opinion, there, are, there is actually a, an institute in my own university that does regular polling of the Israeli public. Right now, there is a majority in the Israeli public against giving up the Golan Heights. But any pollster will also tell you that if there is a negotiation, there is an agreement, it would get a majority in the, uh, in the Israeli public. And actually, the, the, the pro-Golan uh, lobby in Israeli politics has just uh, enacted legislation to require a, a special majority in a vote or in a referendum on the Golan Heights, realizing that this, this would be the case. So the answer, the, the, the straight, simple answer to the question is, right now, in Israeli public opinion, there's a majority against. But it's a safe assumption that should there be a serious negotiation, should there be an agreement, there would be a majority for. We'll take two more questions. Yes. Are there any signs yet in the Israeli government about what relations will be like with the new president of Jordan? Some people have expressed concern that his wife is Palestinian and therefore he may be more pro-Palestinian than his father was. Uh, <clears throat> you mean the king? Uh, you just republicanized him by, by saying that he was the president of Jordan. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> Let him be the president of Jordan, I'll be the king of Tel Aviv University. Uh, the, uh, um, no, I think this, this is all speculative. And, uh, you know, uh, king, his, his late father had uh, four wives. One was Egyptian, one was Palestinian, one was English, and one is from Princeton. So what, what, uh, what, what did he tell us about his about his politics. No, I, I think it's nobody really knows King Abdullah II. Everybody knows that he apparently was a very successful army officer, very little political experience. I think it would not be wise to, to try and guess right now. Time will tell. Yes, one last. I wonder if you could comment on the, what you see as the possibilities for the uh, declaration of a Palestinian state in May. What you think the out, how you think this could be impacted by the, the outcome of the Israeli elections, and how you see all this mm -hmm. fitting into the peace process. Okay, <clears throat> I I don't think there'll be a declaration of statehood in in May. Um, Arafat 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 does not want Netanyahu to be reelected. And I think he, he knows that if, if, he, uh, if he makes a declaration, he's, he's going to push many Israeli voters into Netanyahu's arms, and he's not going to do that. Also, in the Y, I think part of the unpublicized uh, agreement at Y was that there would be a delay that would not be announced in statehood, will not be declared in, in May. Thirdly, frankly, personally, I don't think that Arafat is in a hurry to do that. It's, it's not such a simple proposition from his point of view. I mean, in, he's already announced uh, statehood and independence in 1988. Um, you know, the, uh, on paper, the PLO has embassies uh, around, uh, it's, it's not called PLO offices, but it has embassies in various, not here, but in, in various countries. So to have another, um, another ceremonial occasion in which statehood would be declared without uh, effecting a real change would, would, not, would not be uh, necessarily positive. Also, on what 
territory is he going to announce statehood? Is he going to claim statehood over the whole of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip? He would then have to negotiate. He knows that he would have to give up part of it. It would be much more difficult to make concessions once he, he would have declared or will have declared statehood over the whole territory. It's, it's really going to, to complicate his and everybody's life if he, if he does that. Um, for all these reasons, I don't think he's in a hurry. I think he, he has a problem. He also needs to do something at the end of the period. Now, right now, this is May 4, the election is May 17. Everybody understands that you can wait a while. But, uh, therefore, I think we now shift to the end of 1999. The Palestinian position now would be that, fine, there were Israeli elections in May, there, there will be a new Israeli government in June or July, give you time from November or December, and you try to create pressure at that point. I think this is where, this is the next point for us to watch. Well, Yitamar, thank you very much. I'm sure I speak on behalf of all of us for a very enlightening talk. We welcome you back to the President of the Women's Forum.